show with two retired detectives that were in the thick of New York crime, fast and hectic. They got some stories and some jokes, even an interview with the most popular folks. Off the cuff, off the cuff, one episode just saying enough. Get a little laughter and an interview too. Wow, that's uh, you know a lot of mileage. Everyone, it, I had everyone. Well, ninety nine point nine percent of the people give me positive feedback on the opening in that song. One person didn't like it. It looks like Saturday Night Live, and it's too you know. I said, well, Saturday Night Live is New York City. We're New York City, you know. And before I played it earlier, Phil was doing some of his Brooklyn dance moves, but I don't think he'll do it now. <laughs> And, and Joe Murray, I don't know if I want to see his dance moves, you know. <laughs> but uh, anyway, um, welcome to Police Off the Cuff, Real Crime Stories. I'm your host, Bill Cannon. Uh, we're here tonight with my co-host, straight out of Brooklyn, Phil Grimaldi. How you doing, Phil? Pretty good. Happy Friday, everybody. And uh, just uh, a little bit, uh, you know, this is a tough situation to talk about this, this case, but uh, I'm ready to dig into it. Absolutely. You know, it's amazing that uh, yesterday I put Joe Murray on the flyer and then he didn't show up till like 10 minutes to the end of the show. And today I didn't put him on the flyer and he's here early. Go figure that, right? How do you figure that stuff out? But I, I, I'm not putting him down for that. He's got a life. He's got a job. He's a great attorney. And sometimes things happen and uh, he gets held over with a client, and that's what happened yesterday. And anyway, no excuses. Today was another beautiful day, 75 degrees up here in Westchester County, New York. I, I assume Brooklyn was the same thing, and uh, Queens and the rest of the city, but it was a beautiful day. So, guys, we're going to talk about, um, you know, so new things, but yet not, no real new things are occurring. You know, the big thing, of course, was um, the release of the um, cause of death the other day by the... Uh, Wyoming County Coroner. And, you know, we heard some new terms and uh, I, you have to be living on a, under a rock not to realize the cause of death was ruled as a strangulation. But he used a term that I had heard as a child, but never as a, as a scientific word in the world of homicide. And he used strangulation by throttling. And I had never heard that term in the homicide world, but I've, I'd heard it you know, in the kid world, when kids would say, my dad throttled me yesterday, and you'd know, oh, your dad gave you a beating, you know, but throttling has a very specific meaning when used in the world of homicide, and, and as explained by the coroner. Uh, Philly, why don't you explain it? I can explain it, but I'm going to give you the shot. Well, basically, uh, throttling, I guess, uh, the applying of the pressure until it uh, actually goes so tight around the throat that it cuts off the blood flow and air supply to the brain. Um, the way that uh, uh, she explained it was uh, that, you know, you can go unconscious within two or three minutes and you could be dead up to four minutes. So it doesn't sound uh, very quick. 
so to speak. But uh, yeah, throttling, I, I hadn't heard that term in, uh, you know, from an autopsy before or, or you know, any uh, criminal investigation. But uh, basically, you know, putting pressure on the neck and then when you're throttling and making it tighter and tighter, cutting off the air supply and cutting off the blood flow. Uh, Joe, uh, have you ever heard that term in your uh, legal uh, your legal no, trails? No, I've never heard that term, but I th actually think it's a good term because the, the immediate reference that I draw from that is because I ride motorcycles. You know, when you wrap that throttle, you're like really just amping it up. So maybe that's, you know, uh, the purpose of it to, dem you know, be demonstrative of how bad it is. You know, you're really. Yeah, I, I, I think, that, I think that's true. Yeah, um, I'm glad you brought that up, Joe, because that's what I was thinking of. When you're throttling, you're you're turning the 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 hand grip on the motorcycle, which increases the gasoline flow into the engine, and you're you know you're revving it up, you're speeding, you're going quicker. Yeah. So I think the pressure around the throat is increasing, increasing until it cuts off the air supply, the blood flow. And as we mentioned yesterday, I, I'm sure you'll have that graphic for today. The uh, the hyoid bone. A lot of times, that's how they know a, a, a strangulation occurred. The hyoid bone fractures from the pressure against the throat. Mm -hmm. I want to uh, show a little bit exactly of what the coroner said. And I'll play the uh, the video here. We'll add it to the uh, add it to the stream and get. I just removed it. We find the cause and manner to be cause death by strangulation and manner uh, is homicide. By Wyoming state statute, only the cause and manner of death are released. Their uh, autopsy findings and photographs and that sort of material is not released uh, by state statute. And I'll be glad to entertain uh, some questions at this time. So that was his statement. He And there had been some questions later on in regards to uh, things that he absolutely did not want to answer. Uh, and we would spoke about that yesterday that uh i believe um john walsh has says oh do you now do you think that brian laundry can be charged now that we know it's a homicide we know the cause of death blah 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 and he clearly said that he wasn't going to answer uh any questions in regards to uh the legal end of it which is the work of the investigators and the vet the purview of the investigators put it that way yeah i think that uh listen John Walsh uh, has done a lot of good things over the years. He's responsible for America's Most Wanted, which was on the air for many years. I have a personal uh, story that I was involved in a shootout in 1986. Uh, one of the perps shot out the window of our car. We shot back. I shot one guy. He was captured. The guy got away. And two years later, the guy had gone from New York to Baltimore, Maryland. He was involved in a uh, uh, six people murdered, uh, a Jamaican drug posse. Um, so, uh, the guy was wanted in, in Baltimore, Maryland. They showed the case on America's most wanted on a Saturday night. I happened to be in the office, uh, watching TV and, and I was in the robbery squad at the time in the, uh, robbery identification program in the seven Oh. Anyways, it came up on TV the next night. They captured a guy in crown Heights in Brooklyn. He had gone from Brooklyn to Baltimore. Uh, he was on the run from us from the shooting. He was in Baltimore, committed the, uh, six murders, came back. So John Walsh, listen, I know that he he's coming off a little crazy these days. Uh, that question was way off base. Uh, a coroner has no clue as to who the actual perpetrator is. The coroner can only examine the body and give, uh, you know, information relative to evidence that's found, uh, 
you know, due to cause of death, uh, any uh, DNA evidence that's captured from the body, bo uh, bodily fluids, things like that. So, you know, the question, I think he was a little dramatic. Uh, I know, Joe, you're not uh, crazy about John. And, uh, you know, he, he he's, I think he's more of, uh, he became more of a celebrity as opposed to a, a crime fighter, let's say. But uh, the show did, uh, you know, did uh, capture a lot of people, put a lot of people behind bars. Specifically in my case, uh, you know, I uh, I was grateful for that. But, uh, yeah, that, that question was completely out of the purview of the, uh, of the person uh, conducting the autopsy. Absolutely. Lori C., thank you so much for the $5 Super Chat. And I'm glad you love our intro and this channel too. Thank you so much for the love. We appreciate it. Um, Joe, I know you're dying to talk about this. And, and you know, one of the things that um, we brought up yesterday, uh, the results of the autopsy obviously um, is homicide, uh, which is the manner of death, cause of death being strangulation by throttling. We can examine that also. You know, some people can say, and many will uh get this from a scientific point of view that strangulation is a very personal type of way to kill somebody. You're close up close and personal. Usually it's done to someone that, you know, uh, if you go deeply into the psychology of the, of the killer, but uh, you know, other ways, uh, stabbing is also listed as a very personal way to kill someone up. Cause you gotta be again, up close and personal. Uh, what, what what do you think of the of the the cause of death being strangulation and analyzing the personalness of that? Yeah, you're, you're right on point. Both strangulation and stabbing that's up close and personal, and you know you really have to have the ability to do that because it's bad enough to kill someone and shoot someone, but when when you it actually takes you some time to do it and you have to continue applying the pressure. There's time to think, there's time to change your mind, you know, to, to realize what you're doing. So to me, it just shows the evil mind of the person doing it because you're actually in a strangulation, you are choking the last breath out of them and you're watching life leave their body. So to me, it takes somebody really extraordinary and evil to do something like that. I mean, anyone can pull a trigger, but that to me, like you said, that's so significant that that person has to be, you know, very much impassioned to accomplish that act because they're undeterred at all by what they see. And it's a horrible death. You, you know, know folks in the chat, we're not talking that this was ever a stabbing. We're just talking about things that are listed as to personal ways of killing someone. Uh, and uh, this death was ruled a, a homicide by strangulation. No one said anything about stabbing. We're just saying that we, when we speak about up close and personal ways, one of them is strangulation and one of them is stabbing as causes of death. I don't want to confuse anyone with that. The other thing I wanted to touch upon, and I know Phil, you, you touched upon it the other night, Brian Laundry had at some point flown back to Florida. And I, I don't know the exact time frame, exact amount of days. At some point he came back. No one has asked where was Gabby during that time? And what could something have occurred during that time that maybe caused this rage 
in Brian and that he may have found out about something. Maybe she uh, was with someone else. And I'm just conjecturing on that. We have no facts, but I want the investigators probably know where she was during that time. We don't know that. And no one's reported on that. Phil thoughts. Well, yeah, I brought that up the other day. Um, there was a period of time of five days when uh, Brian uh, flew back from uh, Wyoming back to Florida. And then he allegedly went home uh, to clear out a, a storage storage shed. I don't know, a container, uh, one of them storage units. Uh, I don't know. That didn't sound very uh, logical to me. I mean, right in the middle of his trip, he decides to go home and clean, clear out a, a storage unit. So uh, again, five days uh, before he went back, he, he left five days before he returned back. Where was Gabby in that time period? Who was she in contact with? Uh, what did she do in that time period? Did she remain in one spot? Um, did she stay in the van? Was she uh, at a hotel? Uh, did she meet up with other people? That's a question I'd like to know because I think it plays right into what you said, Bill. Maybe something occurred in that five-day period that could have, um, you know, lured him back. Maybe he left, said, you know, they, they had a fight. He's, I'm going home. And he went back to Florida. And then he has second thoughts. He starts contacting her. Maybe there's people in the background on the phone or something. I don't know. But he did return. He hooked up with her again. I believe the period was around the 17th to the 22nd, if I'm not mistaken. It might even be the 23rd, maybe the 18th to the 23rd. But it was about five days uh, in August. It was a few days. He returned a few days before she's last seen alive on the 27th, which is in that restaurant. And uh, I think it's called some, uh, the something piglet and uh, where they had the argument. So, yeah, there, there's uh, – Five days unaccounted for by where Gabby's movements are, what she's doing, as well as him. I mean, they said he was cleaning out a storage unit. So I, I think that's critical to find out what occurred, maybe through text messaging, uh, cell phone. Well, let, let me just stop you for one second. 100% of homicide investigation is what you're referring to. It's called victimology. You have to study every single aspect of the victim. And there's a five-day period where we don't know what the victim was doing. The investigators 100% have to find out what was going on in those five days. And, and, and I think it's important because you have the public uh, display of mutual combatants on the 12th. Um, there's the period of time that they're separated. So they're separated till the eight, uh, till the, uh, 13th, I guess they re must reunite on the 13th. And then he leaves around four days later or five days later to Florida. He returns after five days. And then when he returns, there's a two or three day period. And then there's that argument. That's a public argument in on the 27th in that restaurant. So you have, uh, from the 12th, to the 27th, there was actions that took place. And that's what I think we need to fill in that blank right there. That may tell us a lot about uh, what was going on. I mean, it's clear to see from what we know, the, the 12th, we have the 27th. There were two domestic violence type arguments. Uh, so, and, and we do have a pretty good idea of uh, their relationship before they even went on the trip from some friends that have been interviewed. Uh, you know, he was showing possessive and manipulative behavior, uh, hiding her driver's license so she wouldn't go out with her friends to a bar. So uh, those are some of the things that I think uh, definitely need to be uh, looked at. Absolutely. Mario Connell, thank you for the uh, final super chat. And this is a question for you, Joe Murray. 
If Brian Laundrie would be found alive and ever get convicted, could he face the death penalty? Yeah, well, if he's convicted of the uh, the federal, uh, if he's charged with murder and he's convicted of a, a federal murder, yeah, there is a federal death penalty. I think I would, I would believe Wyoming. Uh, well, actually, it's Utah, right? So I, I'm not positive about. No, it's it's, Wy- it's Wyoming. I think Wyoming. they do have the death penalty in Wyoming. Yeah, yeah, Wyoming has the death penalty. I think that's fairly certain. But uh, again, it falls into the federal category too, Joe. So I don't know if, you know, whatever the charge I think would be would really be, uh, you know, if they charge with a first degree murder, death penalty obviously would fall into that. But we don't know uh, what charge they're going to be shooting for, you know. Yeah, I mean, I've never had a federal death penalty case. I know there is a federal death penalty. I'd have to look at the specific provisions to see what charge would fit that, you know, but we, we don't even know what they're charging right now. I, anyway, so. I think under the federal statute, if I'm not mistaken, uh, if you're convicted of the first degree murder and it's a death penalty case, there's a second jury. I don't know if a second jury is impaneled or the jury has to deliberate a second time to decide if you in fact get that or life without parole. And at that time, I think they present the egregiousness of the murder and, you know, the depraved indifference and things like that. And I guess they must have some victim impact statements as well. No, you're absolutely right. That's across the country that that's the sentencing phase. First, they determine guilt, then they determine whether or not the sentence and you can introduce aggravating factors and mitigating factors. And it's statutory. It has to be the, the death penalty was abolished, I think, 1972 uh, originally, and they just said it was just too random and arbitrary. It needs to be guided and directed, and that's what they went for that bifurcated process. And there are statutory aggravating factors and mitigating factors that you're allowed to use, the jury's allowed to consider. So it, it became very much more like organized and comprehensive, and, and that just prevents you know the arbitrariness of it. I want to add a, 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 a stream to the, um, just to show this for a second. Today, the, um, the police in uh, the Carlton Reserve, they were out in force again. Uh, I don't know if they have information. One of the things that potentially they could have uh, gotten some information from, from drone footage, and they may have seen something. So they actually went out in force again, and they searched a very specific area. Um, I, I wouldn't imagine that you would use this amount of manpower and resources unless you had very specific information. However, I mean, there's a lot of folks that, um, that feel that, you know, he, he's, he's not around anymore and, uh, maybe he's never been to the Carlton reserve, but we don't have, uh, the police insider information to, to say that. However, um, you know he's he's been gone for a long time now. Could he be surviving in this in this uh, reserve? I don't know. Many people I've heard from one insider. I won't tell you who he is, but he said that he definitely feels that Brian Laundry has help, and he believes the help is his parents have been helping him and or helped him disappear. So are they in communication with him? Is his attorney in communication with him? These are some of the things that uh, we need to question. It's just some of the things that everyone that's been following this case obviously is concerned about because one of the biggest questions is, can the parents be charged, you know? 
And first we want to uh, get Brian Laundry, and then we'll worry about the parents. But that's something maybe you can answer, Joe. Uh, yeah. If sure. he's, go ahead. Go ahead. You answer that. Yeah. I mean, uh, everybody's looking for a bright line rule or bright line test on whether or not they could be charged. It's really a complex question because we don't really know the facts. And if, in fact, you know, first I have to apologize to Philly. I have to apologize to your wife because I get obsessed thinking about cases and I, I go back and forth. I'm texting you at one in the morning. <laughs> My rants about this case. She must be like, who the hell is this? No, no, that's listen. I'm a night owl. That's fine. My wife goes to bed on the early side. I'm a night owl. So no, that's yeah. fine. Anytime. I so bad, but I get so hooked no. into this, but I think about a lot of these issues and I think about, you, you know, what, what's what's the matter for you? <laughs> so, uh, I, I, for those that are listening, we have a picture of Joe Murray looking baffled with his hands in front of him, like he's saying, "What's the matter for you?" Are you so, kidding me? I can just hear. <laughs> are you kidding me? We got to take these guys. <laughs> so, uh, but no, it, th there's so many great issues in this case. I love it, and it's actually helping me because I, I I have to like research a little bit to just fine tune it, but. You have to think about the way they could be charged. Now, we have accessory liability. It could be accessory before the fact, after the fact, part of the crime, aiding and abetting. All of those things don't really matter if he's been charged yet. I mean, if you help someone kill someone, you know, it doesn't matter that he hasn't been charged yet. That's a crime. Criminal facilitation is a crime, you know, so aiding and abetting is a crime. But what I think people are talking about is now after the fact, because nobody has any facts about whether or not they contributed or helped in any way, although it's possible, you know, that the close relationship they have, ma, oh my God, she's dead, she's here, what do I do? You know, oh, I'll call a lawyer. We don't know the facts, but there are hypothetical scenarios that could tie into this. The real issue, I think, is once he's been charged, are they now... Uh, helping him, aiding him, shielding him from detection, which they could be charged with. I personally don't see it happening. I, I don't. I don't feel that, you know, they would expose themselves to something like that. I. I, I think they love their son and they want to help their son, but just the fact the facts that we know, and I'm talking about what we know, a lot of people have other facts they're basing it on, but the facts we know is that he was home. He did leave to go camp. And we knew that even before, you know, this excursion, he went on with Gabby, that when they came home, his parents would do that with him. They were, they were you know, well, I shouldn't say parents, but at least his father, because he was brought out by the FBI to show areas where he likes to go we know that this is the culture of the family. And yeah, then but Joe, my 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 opinion, my my opinion of that was that was a total smokescreen. That oh, was yeah. that was totally put in motion by his attorney. Show them that you're know. concerned. Show them that you you want to help. So it, it, that it's funny that that only but, happened too, Billy. I don't mean to interrupt you, but that only happened where the father went out on the search after the family appeared on Doctor Phil. I'm, that's Gabby's family or her mom and her stepdad and her father and her stepmother, all four of them appeared on Dr. Phil with their attorney. And they called out the, the laundries. They said, uh, you know, what have you done since you've uh, reported your son missing? You've done 
nothing, zero, where we uh, reported our daughter missing and haven't stopped 24 hours a day, seven days a week, you know, getting in front of cameras, going on searches, all those different things. The very next day that after that, that appears on national television, sure enough, uh, Brian's dad goes uh, with the FBI to go, you know, point out locations that they had been camping before. Now, uh, one quick thing about the search that's taken place today, the search had been full blown, then it was scaled back. Now it looks like they went looking for specific places in the Carlton Reserve. I don't know. I'm not sure if it may be that they were looking for places where they think he may have been before. I don't know. Just it seems odd that out of the blue now it, it kicked up again. Like you said, Bill, there must have been some information that led them to do that. I uh, think possible but, drone footage. They could have been looking at drone yeah, footage and spotted something. Of course, you know. Of course, and they want. I just want to, you know, I just want to, Joe. Joe, this is a very interesting question. Pause and fins again. Thanks for the five dollar super chat. This is a question for Joe Murray. If the lawyer says he's representing Brian, surely this means he's alive. Or do lawyers represent dead people? I love that question because you put it right to Joe Murray. I want to see how he answers this one. <laughs> Lawyers do represent dead people. Probate court is full of them. They oh, my God. Interest. I knew he was going to pull out a joker while <laughs> a joker out of that deck. <laughs> uh, no, but, you know, he has no knowledge like anyone else if he's dead or alive. He went out and does what he does and enjoys. He went out into this reserve for peace of mind, God knows he must have been inundated from every direction, even his family. Wait, are you talking about Brian, Joe? Brian. So he went out into this preserve and he didn't come back when he was expected to come back. What did the parents do? Did they allow him to, hey, look, maybe he's running. Okay, run. No, they called down the resources of the entire uh, FBI state local jurisdiction to do this massive search for him. Yeah, but they waited I two days, Joe. Couple of, I think it's unfair what you're doing to the parents with respect to uh, the father going out there. He was asked by the FBI. This is not some concocted, I better go do something. He was asked. First of all, he gave them verbal information, and they said, you know, it would be helpful if you came out with us. And he said yes. So I, I don't like you know, I think you're assuming facts you're, or twisting the facts. He did not call them and say, how can I help? He was called by the FBI to provide this information. Yeah, but that, that, could, that could also make him culpable because he made statements. And then if he points out locations and they can prove that he was never in those locations, they catch him in a lie. He could be putting himself in a trick bag for a charge down the road. You're but also, right. uh, he he also the family lied to, to the FBI. They initially said that it was a, a Tuesday that he went out and he didn't return and they went and got the car on a Thursday. And then the car was seen on a Wednesday, which was one day after it was back at the house. And then they retracted their statements. Well, it might've been on, on the Wednesday. So th they gave him a two day head start from the last time he was seen, Joe. I mean, look, that's I'm, really not I'm a not material fact. I mean, you make a mistake. Was it Tuesday or Wednesday that, you know, and then they corrected it. So I don't see that. Yeah, but Joe, th that, they were given that information when they were reporting a missing, let's say on Friday. They were reporting a missing. And then, you know, the, the car, well, we went and got the car yesterday. No, you got it on Wednesday. And they were only hit with that fact after a neighbor had video footage of it being in the driveway on Wednesday. So when they were caught in the lie, yeah, they are. we might have made a mistake. Listen, I'm, I'm not, listen, I don't care for the, the way that they're, 
acting and what they're doing, their actions. Their posture is terrible with this whole thing. But I get it. They're trying to protect their kid and everything like that. But now at this point, and I think, Joe, you and I agreed about this previously. At this point, it's got to be, I mean, even Sammy the Bull Gravano said it, that, you know, if it were my kid at this point, I got to get an attorney, you got to go in and you got to try and fight it, and put up your best defense. And at the end of the day, they may have to visit their son in a, in a jail cell if he gets convicted. Um, I don't see the death penalty in this case. I just don't. Uh, you know, I, I, I've seen, you know, much more severe cases and they don't get the, the, the death penalty. I mean, look at the Boston bombers. They, the death penalty was in, it was out there. They're still fighting that right now. So I, I don't see the death penalty in this case. So at worst, they're going to visit their son in jail. You know, the, the Petitos are never going to have anything more than a gravesite to, to visit, you know. Joe, uh, Sandy V, thanks. I got to bring this up. He may be found not guilty. I mean, the same facts that you're relying on. Of course, of course. Attorney, think about where Gabby was during those six days that it was actually seven days and six nights where she was. And if she was with someone, and I don't even mean intimately, but just with someone, and now they find DNA from that person on her body, I mean, think about what that creates. I mean, your circumstantial evidence is strong. It's very strong, self, you know, I'm admitting it. But it, it's not conclusive. And I think other things that may pop up that are going to be very surprising. There's a lot of problems with Joe, that was at 2930 of this video that you agreed with us. So I'm going to write that down somewhere so we can say it. <laughs> at 2930... The uh, defense attorney Joe seconds. Murray said said that this circumstantial evidence in this case is very very strong. Sandy V, thank you for the ten dollar super chat, and she says previously it was said that they wouldn't release the cause of death because it would compromise the investigation. So why did they? Thank you guys, you're all wonderful. I'm going to give my opinion on this. Then Joe, you can. I think there was so much pressure by the media and by people probably filing freedom of information laws, because I don't think they ever hold the cause of death for that long. And I think that that decision isn't the FBI's. I believe it is the coroner's decision. I could be wrong, but I believe the coroner can release that without permission of the FBI. Joe, thoughts? Yeah, I think you're right. I mean, he cited that this is statutory. You know, it's it's based on their statute, what they can release. And, and I imagine how they release. I didn't look at the statute, but that's you know, they're, that's their rule of law. I mean, that's how they operate. So it would take an extraordinary effort on behalf of the feds to come in and try to get a protective order to prevent that disclosure, that public disclosure. But the press is very powerful. I have a case right now <clears throat> against the former governor, Elliot Spitzer, and his lawyers, he's got an army of lawyers. They were able to seal this case and shield it. And the court just ruled that, oh, and what happened is the press got involved. Somehow the news in the post, I don't know how they found out about this, but they filed. Yeah, I don't know how either. Their lawyers, <laughs> their lawyers <clears throat> filed, <clears throat> filed uh, papers to get this unsealed under the First Amendment, you know, the, the freedom of the press. And, uh, and they won. So it's going to be unsealed. It's going to be interesting. But I agree with you. I mean, it, it it would be hard for the feds to to come in and stop that. It's based on the local jurisdiction laws. 
So when, let me ask you something, with a situation like this, and I, look, I, I worked homicide for 10 years out of my 27 years on the NYPD, and I always felt that um, I didn't like stuff released to the press. I wanted to keep everything close to the vest, but the NYPD was notorious for giving everything to the press, which drove us crazy. Sometimes it actually hurt the case, but it was coming from on high. It was coming from the PC. Mm-hmm. And the, that's the police commissioner. Those were his orders. He wanted total transparency, but that hurt the cases. But you can also carry it too far the other way, where if yeah. everything's secret, nothing's secret. You know what I mean? And that get, and it gets a little bit too much when they hold everything is a secret. You know, if, I, I, if they hold everything, then you start to get leaks, and just you really don't want that. But a point I want to make about giving too much information out now: I could be working on a homicide case, and if too much information is given out, I mean, we've had guys walk into the squad room. They know they read it in the newspaper, whatever. So and so was killed. I did it. Really? How'd you do it? Uh, well, you know, they're just crazy or they're looking for some type of mental help or whatever. Well, I, I stabbed the guy. Meanwhile, the guy was strangled, you know, whatever, whatever point, you know, however you want to shake it up. So sometimes holding back the information specifics about a a, a case, uh, a lot of times, you know, you can just say person was shot, things like that. Keep it vague. Uh, you know, person died of asphyxia. They didn't have to say throttling maybe and, and go through that much detail. Oh, that, that's only in a case where, you know, to me, where you don't have a person of interest, so to speak, or a suspect, you don't know where the case is going. Phil, so I thought we I thought we agreed we'd never use that term, person of interest. <laughs> I only heard it on the news. I hate in that another term. Case. I know. I know. You're right, Billy. I'm not, I'm not a fan of it either. But I, I, the reason it's in my head is I heard it in the Murdoch case. Uh, there was an arrest in that case. They got him as a person of interest in, in his, uh, in his uh, wife and son's death. They, they basically he's a suspect in that, but we'll talk about that another time. But the point is that sometimes giving out too much information is no good. My time in, in the bureau, uh, you, you you were in a homicide squad up until what year? Until like 2011, right? 2011, the, the, yeah. 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 See, I, I left the, the, the homicide like 2003 when I retired. So things might've been a little bit looser. And in the <laughs> early years, uh, they try to keep a lot of things close to the vest especially on a high profile case, you don't want too much information. You know, somebody walks in and says, Oh, I did it. They want to claim fame and stuff like that. So, you know, when you have certain facts that you know, that no one else knows, it's, uh, it's helpful. 100%. You know, I just want to play a short uh, video. This was another uh, television talking head that uh, I thought was pretty, it was pretty good. I'm just play a little bit of this. It's his take on he's an academic but he's a young lady whose body has been down for three to four weeks according to the coroner they saw something so glaring even in that decomposed state that they were able that afternoon with no further testing to say this is a homicide the problem arose for us on the outside not on the inside it lacks specificity and that brings us to the cause that he came to yesterday and initially yeah i kind of interpreted as him being a little bit coy there were questions that the reporters directed to him. Like I remember one in particular where they said, can you tell us if she had been buried? And he said, I'm going to defer to the FBI. And there were a couple of times that he did that relative to evidentiary matters. I think as it applied to DNA and all those sorts of things. But then last night, something huge happened. Dr. Blue gave an interview with Anderson Cooper. And on that show, he stated (laughs) that not only was this an asphyxial death, but it was a 
strangulation, and it was a strangulation via throttling. Now that, yes. you talk about putting a fine point on something, that really narrows the field down because throttling is so very specific. He went to great lengths to even say that this was not mechanical, which essentially means that there wasn't a ligature involved. There wasn't a cord or a rope or a piece of wire or a belt or a scarf, nothing like that. When they say throttling, they're talking about the application of two hands on this young woman's throat. And most of the time in the classic sense, when you're talking about throttling, it can happen either anteriorly, that means from the front or posteriorly, we think about movies where some stranger walks up and they choke someone in some classic, but this isn't in the movies. My opinion is this is a face-to-face -face event. This is very intimate. Anytime you have an asphyxial death, it's one of the most horrific things that can happen because there's literally less than a foot of clearance between the perpetrator. He would have looked her in the eye and as he's literally squeezing the life out of her. So the bigger question is, and we don't have an answer to this yet, what exactly did they see specifically? Well, we had foiled a document from the Teton County um, Coroner's Office that basically was a letter signed by Dr. Blue that mm -hmm. confirmed that her manner of death was manual strangulation slash right. throttling. So right. manual strangulation would mean that there was no other instrument involved, right? Is that what you were yes. just saying before? You are absolutely right. And this is how we can kind of delineate if if folks uh, at home will just think about this, if you take like a rope and you apply it to a surface, it's gonna leave a specific mark and it'll have defined margins to it. it. It won't expand out. With a manual strangulation, people at home need to think about the surface of their hands, like contact in a surface. You're applying pressure over a large area. So I have seen cases, and I can't speak to this one particularly, but I have seen cases involving throttling where you will have widespread and diffuse hemorrhage throughout the musculature. And sometimes you'll see it externally, but let's remember Gabby's been down for a while. So I don't know if they could see that, but when they were able to do a deep examination of the autopsy, they very well may have seen into the musculature little focal areas of hemorrhage that were broad ranging. And there's something else that comes into play here. It's not just the hemorrhage that we're looking for at autopsy. We have our trachea right in the center of our throat, which is classically, you know, for lack of better terms, where a windpipe passes through. It's cartilaginous. It's kind of like, you know, our septum in our nose. Mm -hmm. That can actually fracture as well. And when you apply pressure to it. So we look for that. And also the infamous hyoid bone. Everybody wants to know about the hyoid. And it's located way, way up. Many times with manual strangulation, you'll see a fracture in the hyoid. And keep in mind, it is rare, I mean, very rare that this bone, the hyoid, gets fractured when manual strangulation is not involved. It, you don't see it most of the time in hangings. You don't see it just as like an accidental event. I've seen one that was accidental. It just doesn't happen. Most of the time, it's direct application of pressure on this specific area. So it has to be very high. There's a lot of leverage and a lot of direct pressure that's applied to it. So many people have been asking this question, including ourselves, if they were able to identify this as homicide so quickly, what took them so long to come to this autopsy ruling? The coroner has been talking to the authorities. People say, well, Morgan, obviously he has. Now, what I'm saying is he's communicating with them. And this happens a lot. The authorities were at the autopsy. I can almost guarantee an FBI evidence response team was there. This is 
make no mistake about it, this is an FBI case now. They're on the hunt for this guy. The feds are on the hunt. The U.S. Marshals are on the hunt for Mr. Laundry. They are not going to reveal any further information specific to kind of the causal factors. Feds tend to play things very close to the vest. So they're not going to release a lot of information. I'm surprised that we got what we did, but let me tell you what they did that was kind of cool. One of the statements that Dr. Blue made was the fact that in this kind of shock as well, because people have been kind of casting aspersions because they're so far out and isolated. This man sat there and said, we did a CAT scan and not just a CAT scan. We did a full body CAT scan. Most coroner's offices might do an x-ray if they have access to an x-ray machine. We did a CAT scan. Why is that so unusual? Oh, it's, it's because it's high-end equipment. Not everybody has this. And what's even more key here is the fact that he stated when asked, did her body ever leave the facility? It didn't. That means one of two things. Either they brought in a portable CAT scan, which is pretty significant, or do they have one, you know, in-house there? But, you know, the, the bigger point here is that with x-ray, you take a case now that's being documented in a two-dimensional perspective. Think about any time you've ever seen a personal x-ray, folks at home can identify with it. You'll look at it and say, what is this? I can't make heads or tails out of it. Now you go CAT scan, you're talking three-dimensional. Now you can appreciate height and depth and thickness and all those sorts of things. And this is a powerful tool at trial. One of the biggest things that happens with autopsy photography, for instance, is that the defense will say, this is too graphic. It's prejudicial. We can't show this to the jury. There's nothing prejudicial about CT scans. It's not gory. But you can appreciate, say, for instance, before you ever do the autopsy, the body's completely intact. You can appreciate the status of the hyoid bone in relation to any hemorrhage that might be there. You're not disrupting the body at all, but it's demonstrative. And that's very, very powerful. So they went to great length. He's also submitted trace evidence according to what he said. There's an entomologist involved, which is a bug doctor. More than likely, I'm suspecting a forensic entomologist. More than likely, if the feds are involved, the FBI, this has gone to the Smithsonian. They deal with the entomologist there. There's also a forensic anthropologist who deals with skeletons. So, it's a real full court press that they're putting on. And at the end of the day, I can tell you, they are going to have a boatload, a boatload of evidence. That well, that's something a defense attorney never wants to hear. A competent, no, I disagree. I disagree. A competent <laughs> scientist. No, I just want to, Dr. Morgan, he was brilliant. I think he gave a tremendous presentation there. I mean, I love Barbara Butcher and she did an unbelievable presentation the other night also. But he explained it in a different way, uh, a little further. And I think that the underlying thing is that you can also see a lot of politics going on behind yeah. the scenes as to why they don't want to release that information. And when it's the FBI, uh, everything is top secret to them. you know. And I think that to the point of uh, it's not even believable after a while you know, that it's that top secret. Well, hear me out on this. I think the logic behind doing this CAT scan was Gabby lived with the laundries for the last two years. And she, I'm assuming, was going to her regular doctor and uh, getting treatment and whatnot. Uh, but when you do a CAT scan of a domestic violence victim, 
someone who you think may have killed her, it may not have been his first time seriously injuring her. So they're looking for, you know, broken bones, things that would have been broken and healed. You'll still see it on a CAT scan to show that this is a pattern of abuse that resulted and escalated to her death. And I think a lot of that was politically motivated because this is such a high profile domestic incident that has been scrutinized by everyone all over the world. And then everyone with their own personal traumatic incidents is chiming in and I think stirring this up or it could be true. And I don't know because of information the FBI has and hasn't released. But I think by now doing that CAT scan and if it shows absolutely nothing that she was perfectly healthy, there's no you know, presence of any prior injury that they could use, that's going to hurt them. Again, it's going to hurt them. But, but Joe, I, I think that that's almost, that's like almost this, like a checklist. Just like this doctor. Why is he doing interviews? Bad enough, he was on air talking about this is an example of domestic violence. How could he say that? How could he say that looking at a body? I mean, you're, you're referring to the coroner. The he's, coroner. He's referring to Dr. Blow. Right. I don't think that he should have taken the position at all with that because I don't know if there were other signs, uh, physical signs, uh, scientifically, that they could say there was domestic violence in this case. I don't know. I, don't, I mean, that is probably, to me, the CAT scan was probably a checklist thing. We have the body. Let's do that because... A defense attorney may ask, were there any signs on the body of old injuries that healed? Was there any other signs of domestic violence to her? So yeah. that may have been that they're covering themselves for those questions that guys like you are going to be asking. Joe makes a good point. It could help. It could hurt. But let's not forget, this is a very high profile case. It took place on federal property. The FBI is involved. So they're going to throw all their resources at it. And I think the CAT scan was a great idea because, uh, you know, the body probably wasn't in very good shape. It was out there for three or four weeks. Take it. It's not going to be disturbed. They'll, they'll probably do x-rays and CAT scan before they even touch the body. So therefore, maybe you'll find uh, you know, broken bones, bullet wound, stab wound, whatever. So I think it was a good idea. And again, Joe, that's a great point. I talked about this yesterday before you came on. That might show previously uh, healed up injuries, broken bones. I would be looking in the rib cage area. I'd be looking at the limbs to see if maybe there was uh, some type of, uh, you know, a defensive wound. She put her arm up and, and fractured her wrist or her forearm or something to that effect. Or if there was any kind of other injuries that are unaccounted for in her medical, medical records. Because maybe when she was a kid, she fell off a bicycle and broke her leg or something like that. But now she's got these fractured ribs and the family can say, listen, you can talk to the family doctor. These are the doctors who have been treating her all life. She doesn't have any uh, previous injuries in her rib cage. So if they and they could probably tell about how long a general six months, a year, five years, how long that injury was there and then it healed up. So I think the CAT scan was right in line with what should have been done. I mean, that's my opinion. You know, I Phil, I also want to add other things, uh, Joe, just from our perspective, from a. Uh, a pathologist's point of view, there's things that can be considered almost like a checklist. A rape kit. Did you do a rape kit? I'm sure they did. Because, again, you may ask that as a defense oh, yeah. attorney. 
the, uh, a pregnancy uh, test. They right. did that too. What, does and, that and really? Again, she, she's out there in the wilderness. Maybe Brian wasn't there. Maybe somebody came upon her and, you know, raped her and killed her. God forbid. I, I don't want to even think about that. But so those questions could be put out there. And again, they probably did do a rape kit. I would think it would be in their interest to do that. I agree with Bill 100% on that. Yeah, and I that's agree. basically Joe. That's basically a pathologist checklist of sure. things that they need to do because they this is not their first uh, rodeo, as they yeah. would say. You know, right. uh, Joe. Uh, someone named the Mystery Maven. Uh, thank you for the super chat. Four ninety nine. Joe Murray. What are your thoughts about the time of death by the coroner? Because it will be a range. Would this be an opportunity for a criminal defense attorney? I love the mystery maven. We, we correspond back and forth with each other and uh, always great issues. And just like, you know, me texting you at one in the morning, Phil, you know, like I get obsessed. So I reach out to <laughs> other people. And uh, yeah, I think that that timeline is devastating. You know, I mean, we we know they probably have a really solid timeline on Brian as to where he was, where he was going, GPS, you know, with whether it be a phone or, or cell phone, uh, uh, credit cards and stuff like that, they'll know where he was and they'll have a pretty good timeline on him. So, you know, that three to four weeks, does it fall into the time where he was not even there, where he was home and she was out with other people and, you know, I, I just think, you know, she met other people and, and, uh, you know, we know that she was there on the 27th. That's, to me, the last fact that we know. But she met other people, and she may have been, you know, associating with other people. We we need a witness to tie him to the scene and being with her, you know, at that, you know, range of time. We know that he was with her in the the, the piglet on the 27th. And I think it was during the day, right, Phil? It was like yeah, it was, it was early evening, I believe. It was early evening. So, and... and Weird. Listen, his, his cell phone, the cell phone technology is going to place him in that area. Uh, you know, I mean, there might be other factors. There might be videos. I mean, they could have stopped at some rest stop or something along the way later on in the night. Uh, we don't know what their exact movements were on the 27th. We believe that that may have been the night that she was killed, 27th, going into the 28th, based on the fact that she wasn't heard from. And then there was that text message uh, that went from uh, Gabby's phone to the mom's phone and, and uh, referred to the grandfather in a, in a odd way that she would never refer to him. So uh, yeah. And then there was another text message where uh, uh, the mom had texted her and, and the response was no cell service. And he placed him on the other side of the country. I'm saying he, uh, whoever it was that answered that, uh, that text message. So uh, yeah, that, that the, the cell phone, Gabby's cell phone was active, I believe up until the 30th. I think that's uh a fair statement because they said that uh, the mom received that message on the 30th and she thought it was odd. I think he mentioned a park out in California. There's no service here. So uh, yeah, I mean, all of those things. And again, the FBI is all over this stuff. We have just very little knowledge of what's public and that's what we're going on. We're going on facts that we know. There's a lot of things that we don't know. And again, we don't know the condition of that body from that autopsy. That doctor gave very little information. He, that was an opinion about domestic violence. That was just an opinion of his. He slipped up on that. Um, you know, he's so have to pay a trial for that because he, he's going to get beat up. You know, 
Well, I mean, listen, he might say, no, he might say that based on what I saw in the media, it was my opinion that it was a, a domestic violence issue because uh, I saw strangulation in the, in the, uh, in the autopsy. So I don't think it's a big deal. I really don't, but he should have, he should have buttoned his lip. He doesn't have a lot of experience in, you know, doing press conferences on uh, autopsies. That's I think a fair statement as well. Yeah, but I mean, he's gonna have to come in and 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 testify to a, a degree of medical certainty about his findings, and then when he throws out something like that, okay, was that part of your finding? You're certain about that? You know, I I, I just well, think it was. It was yeah, I'm sure, I'm sure that that would be something that uh, that you know a defense attorney might dig down on. I'm sure of that, but I think it's really easily answerable by saying, you know. Um, this was my opinion. I shouldn't have said it or something like that at the time. But, you know, based on all the history that I was watching in the media, what I knew about the case. Because don't forget, Joe, when there's an autopsy, they don't just examine the body. They get information from the police. They get information Absolutely. from the detectives first. Absolutely. So the detectives, I've actually had a hand deliver DD5s to the coroner before autopsy. And they want to read how did you find the body? What condition was it in? What was the reason that the police were called to begin with? Was it a domestic violence? So they take all of that information in. So that might have just been a slip of the tongue. He may be given that information that we believe by the investigators, we believe it could be a domestic violence uh, homicide. So maybe that's where he came with, came up with that. You know, he mm -hmm. may even refer to it and say, well, uh, detective so-and-so said to me that they believed it was a domestic violence homicide. So I don't think that's a big deal. It's not like, it's not like he lied about evidence or something like that, or he was completely incorrect. He needs to. And, and I think the judge in the case will probably keep, you know, keep uh, a defense attorney on the rails, sticking to what he's there for. He's there to give his expert opinion on his medical investigation during the autopsy. I don't think the judge is going to allow a lot of latitude to go off on an expedition because he said it might've been a domestic violence uh, component in the case, you know? You know, Phil, even though Joe Murray is a commercial for himself live, we still have to do his, uh, <laughs> Let me find to do his okay. commercial. Joe Murray is really showing his expertise in law today. Have you found yourself in a jam? Are you in need of legal counsel in the New York area? Do you need a victim's advocate? Well, Joe Murray is obviously your man. He's not only an experienced trial attorney, he's also a retired 15-year member of the NYPD. He knows both sides of the fence. He was actually uh, defending a police officer yesterday when he uh, showed up late for the show. His website is jmurray-law.com. That's jmurray-law.com. His telephone number is 646-838-1702. Or you could email Joe at joe at jmurray-law.com. That's joe at jmurray-law.com. You know, folks, if you like Police Off the Cuff, please go to our uh, YouTube site, hit the subscribe button. Ring that bell. Give us a thumbs up. We also have a Patreon, www.patreonpoliceoffthecuff.com. We have a policeoffthecuff.com website. You can also become a YouTube member. We have four levels uh, for $2.99 a month. You're the bucket. For $9.99 a month, you can polish my rack. For $24.99 a month, you're dipped in butter. We tried to make these things funny. And for $49.99 a month, you're heated dipped in butter. We have one person that loves the heated butter. Thank Who you doesn't so much. like warm butter? Come That's on. right. Thank, Dr. Matt, thank you so much for being the one person that is uh, a member there. And, you know, we try to give our um, a police perspective. We try to once in a while put a little humor in this because life is, is far too serious all the time. 
And every once in a while, you have to have a laugh, even though this case, of course, is uh, so, so serious and so tragic. And we've been pretty much covering it since the beginning. You know, there's even been articles on this um, in the media uh, as to why this case has caught the public's attention. Why is it so popular? And uh, you can read the article and you can determine yourself. Obviously, like this is a beautiful young girl, 23 years old, a boyfriend. They were uh, uh, engaged. They were going around the world, on the world, the country in a van. They were putting it out there on social media. So therefore, it caught the attention of the entire country and now the entire world. And people are sort of obsessed with it. And I think that has a lot to do with um, with social media. You know, it definitely does have a lot. But I think besides social media, people really do care about this young lady. And it, it's, it's sort of taking their heartstrings. And I just wanted to give a short comment on that. I'm sure everyone's going to be analyzing, oh, why did this case become so popular? And why there's two people murdered here? There's two people murdered there. There's 10 missing women here. Why, you know... Why are people interested in certain movies? Why are people interested in certain television shows? Why are people interested in certain music? It has, you know, it, this caught the attention of the entire world, and we can analyze that forever. Uh, Huda Ali, thank you for the 10 pounds, Super Chat. Excellent work, gentlemen. The Moab police should have arrested them both. The witness said clearly that he was slapping Gabby. I hope they make a domestic violence law act on Gabby Petino in name. You know, it, it, this is this is very difficult. You know, Joe Murray, why don't you comment on this? I love it. I think people are relying so heavily on this very vague, very general 911 call. And, you know, I try to point out the obvious facts just looking at it. All it said was the guy was slapping the girl. Didn't say how the fight started. Didn't say whether she fought back didn't say he was slapping her in the face. It didn't even say where he was slapping her. Didn't say she fell to the ground. She was crying or wincing in pain. So just evidentiary wise, what do we take from that? How much weight can we apply to something like that? We don't even know why they didn't speak to him. Maybe they tried to call him and he was unresponsive. What we did get though was the second caller and the second caller, after being interviewed by the officer on the air, like he, he was doing it on his body camera, this, off, this witness, yes, he saw him hitting her, but then through further questioning, okay, uh, was she hitting him too? Yes, she was hitting him. She was over at the driver's side of the vehicle and hitting him, and he's on the inside. Well, to, to any logical person, She's the aggressor because she could retreat, walk away. He can't. He's stuck there. He's in the driver's side, and she's smacking him inside. She's the aggressor. So when they're outside and they're, they're still going at it together, he asked him, what, was the, what did you think from looking at the guy? Was he hitting her in a defensive posture or an aggressive, aggressive posture? And this is what the cops are supposed to do, a primary aggressor analysis. And he said it looked like he was being more like to calm her down, uh, you know, defensively, not, you know, going on the attack to hurt her. What about her? No, yeah, she was she was trying to hit him. I mean, so 
this second call that everybody's putting so much weight on, you can't. You just can't. I don't know why. Maybe the officers didn't call him, but they really should have. Or maybe they called him and he was unavailable. But for whatever reason, we can't just assume facts. Oh, he was slapping her. First of all, you want to hurt somebody, you're not slapping them. And slapping technically is really considered harassment because you don't cause an injury by slapping, you know? And then if he was causing an injury, you would think he would say, wow, he's smacking this girl. She fell to the ground. What? No, that's not what we hear. So when everyone relies on that call so much and applies such great weight, it's wrong. You really can't from an evidentiary standpoint. You know what, Joe? I think that uh, Gisela Karsten, who we had on uh, the show the other night from Grizzly Books, she made two fantastic points. I don't think I could say it enough. She said, if the officers would have asked Gabby, are, do you feel safe? Because she was in a domestic situation. She was in a, a situation where she was later assaulted. And she said that she passed the police officer and he looked at her and she looked at him, but she continued to walk. But had he stopped her and asked, do you feel safe? She would have immediately responded, no, I don't. And things might've gone differently. So again, there's that. And then she also offered, maybe if they would have checked with Gabby and Brian the next day, that may have also led to, again, we don't have a crystal ball. We think that uh, you know, in our opinions that the officers did go above and beyond. And, uh, you know, if there's uh, if there's some type of a law they want to come up with, a Gabby's law, maybe to ask if you feel safe. Whoever whoever interdicts with two people in a domestic situation, uh, whether it be a guy and a girl or whoever, uh, to just ask both parties, well, do you feel safe? from this point forward, if it's not going to be an arrest situation, I think that might be helpful because, I mean, right out of uh, Gisela's mouth, uh, who, she was a victim herself. She said, had the officer said that to me at that moment, uh, you know, stop me and ask me, I think uh, I would have said, no, I'm not safe. I don't feel safe. And it may have had a different outcome. So, uh, well, but you, listen, somebody's subjective yeah. feeling of not being safe is not evidence of a crime. I mean, no, but I think I think the officer might take it to a different level. If if I'm a police officer, I'm in uniform. I roll up on a family dispute, a dispute between a, a you know a guy and a girl, boyfriend girlfriend, and I start to get a feel like just in this one, you know, all right, maybe the mutual combatants. There's nothing really here. But then I ask the girl, "Do you feel safe if I leave?" And she says, "No, I don't." Oh, I'm not gonna. I'm not driving off. Then I'm going a little further. I'm giving it the extra. You're gonna separate them. Yeah, like yeah, yeah, of course. Did, of Joe, course. I think what they're really saying is that um, for for the training of officers in the future, yeah. not not thinking of trying this case in a court of law, but for, for having officers respond professionally and to cover every base so that this didn't doesn't escalate. I mean, no one could have predicted that 15 days later that Gabby would have wound up murdered, we believe, by her fiancé. And I'm just saying... That's what, what we believe. And again, that would, when when and if he's arrested, that'll have to be tried in a court of law. But I think what Phil is saying and a lot of other people are saying is that, that people think that cops, and, and they do, they need more training in responding to, to domestic violence. We happen to have given our opinions that we felt that the Moab police did a pretty competent job. They they did, they covered all, they spent an over hour on this they job. They did a great Bill, job. I, 
I want to make another point. We're looking at Brian right now on the screen. This is in the morning. Uh, he doesn't appear to be intoxicated or anything like that. Now, we know on the 27th th that he had the argument. We don't know if he was drinking. Maybe between the period when they left the piglet till the time that she was murdered, maybe he took intoxicants, drinking drugs, God only knows. And there could have been a rage that came out in him. He looks very calm and mild-mannered in this video that we're seeing. It's in the morning. Uh, he's obviously not intoxicated or anything like that. You know, you could have a Dr. Jekyll and Mr. Hyde scenario. Somebody who's very calm, uh, astute with people, uh, respectful, but then they in ingest some alcohol. And I, I've known a few guys like that. So they ingest some alcohol and they be, we call it uh, beer balls or beer muscles, you know, and then maybe you, you, you mix into it some uh some type of a narcotic or, or some kind of a hallucinogenic, God only knows. And then you can have somebody that has superhuman strength and, and commits a murder like that, you know? So again, uh, the autopsy, the toxicology might show that they may have both ingested some type of narcotic. We don't know, you know? So uh, there's a lot to be said here. And look, like Bill was saying, there's always room for training, always room for improvement, especially especially in a domestic violence, as well as the psychologically, emotionally disturbed person's field uh, when it comes to law enforcement. We could always do better. I mean, they, they, they have over the years, you know, developed through police science and through different techniques that have been developed with regard to emotionally disturbed persons and domestic violence cases. You know, we try our best and you can't knock these guys. I know, I know it's a terrible thing. You know, Gabby wound up dead. It wasn't like she wound up dead 10 minutes later after this video. I mean, if those guys had a do over again, I'm sure that they would love to put him in handcuffs and separate the two of them and maybe even arrest both of them. Who knows what would happen? But again, we may have had the same result, even if that happened. You know, folks, I just uh, want to say that we, we take uh, domestic violence very, very seriously. Uh, both of us, uh, all three of us, in fact, uh, I was a sergeant most of my career in the NYPD. And I believe me, I was trained in it. I knew what to spot. And usually uh, I erred on the side of making an arrest because that was what the NYPD wanted. In this instance, I have said many times, I thought, the officers did a pretty good job. But when I had the information about the phone call that he had been slapping her, and a lot of people in the chat and a lot of you domestic violence experts in the chat, you don't like my answer. I probably would have locked both of them up. And uh, because to determine the primary aggressor was a very difficult thing to do. But as a boss, a sergeant, I would have made the decision to arrest both of them. Would that have prevented Gabby's murder? Uh, I don't know. I, I don't. I really don't know. Bushwhacker. Hello, gents. Thank you for keeping Gabby in our hearts. May I ask, how was the officer in charge of uh, the vehicle stop? I was truly impressed with his care with no hindsight. I think many people were impressed with there. And, you know, many people, again, in the chat, I you know, this the street is not a court of law. Right. It's not, not. You cannot hold court in the street. There has to be a decision made and the right. law applied and either someone gets arrested or they don't. We're not curing society's ills on the street or holding a, uh, a court hearing or, or a trial or anything like that in the street. They spent over an hour on this case. And I, you folks can criticize us, but I don't know if you ever strapped on a gun and, and, and went to these cases. Nope. And unless you have... You know, you can't criticize, you can criticize this. I'm not going to tell you what you can't, can and cannot do, but 
you have to give us and police a break. They are trying to apply the law in the best way they can in a very tense situation. And I'm sorry if you don't think that uh, they did a good job. First day in the police academy, I'll never forget it. First day, they uh, the, the instructor asked, what do you think the most dangerous situation a police officer could be in? And there was all kinds of answers. And he said a domestic violence situation, it can accelerate and you could be hurt like that. So, I, I mean, that was day one. They, they, they've they labeled it the most volatile situation, the most likely an officer can get hurt. I don't know what the st- statistics on it are on it today, but uh, when I was in the police academy in 1982, that's what they told us. That's the, the number one most volatile situation where an officer can get hurt. So uh, there you have it. You know, domestic violence. It's not an easy, not an easy thing to deal with, and every case is different. Um, one last comment about Gabby, about the, the media retention on Gabby. I think, and I said it before we went on the air, we were discussing it. I think because of those videos that we've looked at, I, I even said to to Joe and and to Bill, I feel like I know her from seeing her face so much. She looks like everybody's kid. I have a daughter around that age. She could be anybody's daughter. And listen, every victim of a shooting or a homicide should get the, the, the right attention to the case should get the right focus. The media is all over this one, I think, because of the excessive uh, amount of attention based on that one hour uh, body cam video and stuff like that. And again, you know, uh, a lot of these other murders that they're saying, oh, well, this murder in Chicago isn't getting it. You don't have that kind of uh, intimate knowledge. You're seeing the victim talk. You're hearing her talk. She's in a very distressed state. Uh, so I think that those are the things that really connected with everyone. And it's it's throughout not only our country, it's almost throughout the world. So I think that's the reason, you know, they're going to put racial overtones on it. I don't think it has anything to do with that. I think they just looked at, listen, if that kid was any, any other kid, uh, we would feel the same way in our hearts from seeing her in such a bad way and, and so upset and everything and crying. And it's just really touching everybody's heart. I, I said it. I feel like I know this kid. It's it's Absolutely. just terrible. But You know, Kim Queen, I want to I want to address what, what you said. Why wait for a dead body? Why not do an intervention with a backing up of DV social worker? There needs to be an interim order that addresses and puts in action preventive action. You know, I mean, that's very easy to say, but, you know, the police go to hundreds and thousands of these jobs every year. When do you call the social worker? Is the social worker in the back of the radio car? Is the social worker going to do a better job than a trained police officer? I don't think so. How about when social workers start getting killed? Because as Phil just said, domestic violence incidents are some of the most dangerous jobs that the police go on. And how do you differentiate between an easy domestic violence job and a dangerous one. How do you do that? I think that you people are expecting cops to be superheroes, to be mind readers, to, to, to be able to predict what's going to happen if they don't take certain action. I don't think we have that ability. And I don't think social workers do either. So this is a feel-good thing. Let's bring social workers in. And you know something? I, I just I've said this before, Kim Queen, and I don't mean any disrespect to you. People also mentioned more training. And yes, every cops want training, believe me. But police departments don't want to pay for it. And that's a fact. They're defunding the police now. The last thing they're ever going to do is give them more training. And, and you know, it, it's ridiculous. And even politicians will say, oh, they need more training. Then why did you just defund them? You know? So it's it's a catch-22. And, and 
you know, we feel the frustration because we did this job. Myself for 27 years, Phil for 21, and Joe for 15. We did this job. We know the no-win situations we're in many times. You know what, Bill? There actually is uh, a, a, a position between uh, uh, people who are involved in domestic violence. That Every precinct in New York City has a domestic violence officer. Now, most of the time, there's follow-up when a, we call it a DV report. A domestic violence report is issued. You know, police could show up at an apartment. It's just a verbal argument. They do a domestic violence report. It goes to the domestic violence officer. It's reviewed. They check in with both parties, make sure. And they can even recommend counseling and different things like that. I don't know if there's social worker intervention, like you were saying, there's just so many cases. I don't think uh, there's enough social workers to go around in New York City anyhow to respond to all of these cases. But there is a, a policy in place in the NYPD where they do do those follow-ups. And a lot of times if there's an arrest made, a lot of times that there is counseling, they have a thing called mediation where they send both parties. If they, they insist on not pressing charges and they want to get back together, they do have mediation and stuff like that. So there are, there are uh, different things in place to uh, follow up with it. You know, obviously in a perfect world, the social worker sitting in the back seat with a, uh, you know, uh, the solution to the problem would be great. It's not always that practical, though. No, yeah, that absolutely. would never work. I mean, that that doesn't make sense. You guys all know that most of the majority of domestic incidents end in arrest. They always end in an arrest. There's a must arrest statute. So if there's evidence of a crime, they're arrested. Put the social yeah. workers in central booking. We'll deliver them to you. And then you <laughs> could do your magic there and call the complainant up. And, yeah. you yep. know... Do your stuff there. Why do you need to be out on patrol? I think that's so dangerous. So Very cautious, dangerous. And, and it's not going to be helpful. You know, what are you going to do? Start an argument and how to handle the case? I mean, that's they're the most, as you pointed out, Phil, the most dangerous job we could ever encounter is are these domestic violence cases. DV case. You don't need it to be complicated by someone who's not, you know, you know, a tactic savvy. I mean, you know, when you're with your partner, you have a regular way of working and how you, you know, cover each other. What are we doing with the social worker now? Well, you know, how Joe, like you said, ta tactic savvy. The first thing they tell you when you go into an apartment and it with a domestic violence incident is get them the hell out of the kitchen. Yeah. Right. Because that's where the knives are. You know well, what I mean? Would home. a social worker know that? Or would the social worker be, oh, you're sharpening your knives. How nice. You know, yeah. uh, the, the other thing they always told you, uh, when you separate them, you want to face your partner. So you want to have the person you're talking to's back is facing the people on the other side. You don't want them uh, you know, you don't want your back to your partner. Now your partner could be being assaulted and you're not observing it, you know, yeah. or and, so and Phil, Phil, assault your partner. How many times do you uh Say the husband is the aggressor. You go to grab him, and the wife jumps on your back. Happened to me. Yep. Happened because now, so those are dangerous situations. Bushwhacker, thanks again for the eight ninety nine super chat. Thank you guys. What support is the officer receiving after dealing with such an outcome? When I thought he did all he could to do the rule of care law, that's part of police work. That's why I I've said on numerous occasions, we all have a touch of PTSD. That's not easy if the officer in Wyoming is blaming himself for that. I pray for him that he doesn't, but that's part of this job. And uh, they always use that term, oh, we're cops, we have thicker skin. But you really don't. That's why cops commit suicide at a rate higher than almost any other profession there is. 
you know, guys, we're at an hour and 15 minutes. So uh, even though I, I love this and we could talk forever on this, um, it, it's, it's you know, I think there's going to be more things occurring on this case, more interesting dialogue we can have. And, you know, just folks that are listening, what, what, what we care about these people. We really do. And we work domestic violence cases. And believe me, what, we sometimes because you're a male, you get blamed. Oh, you're not sensitive to domestic violence. Yes, we are. And we all know a great deal about it. And we've seen cops, you know, respond to these situations. And if you think the cops in Wyoming weren't professional, I got news for you. They were. They were very professional. Maybe you didn't get the outcome that you wanted. And look, no one could have predicted the tragedy that was going to happen 15, 16 days later. And if you blame it on those cops, I I, I think I think you're wrong. Uh, Phil Grimaldi, last words. Last words. I just want to see Brian Laundrie uh, arrested for the outstanding charges. Let's see what the evidence that they've gathered over the past uh, several weeks, uh, if it points to him. Uh, I'm sure he'll be charged with murder. Uh, and then we'll go to trial stage and, uh, you know, the evidentiary stages of, uh, of the case. Um, you know, uh, I just hope and pray that, uh, the Petito family is, uh, holding it together. I'm sure that they're, uh, mourning and grieving for the loss of their beautiful daughter. Uh, it, this case has captured everyone's heart across the America, across America, across the world. I mean, we have people in the chat from all over the world. So, uh, again, I, I stated before what I think every victim should have an advocate and every victim uh, usually does have the police to, to fight for them. Um, this case is getting a, a, a much wider spread from the FBI because of the location where it happened. And it's a high profile case. So uh, let's hope that we have a speedy uh, capture of Brian and uh, let the chips fall. What are going to fall? And uh, we have a great defense attorney here, uh, Joe Murray, that's given his opinion. You know, we, we call this spitballing when we would be in the squad working on a case. Now we don't have everything in front of us that the detectives that are working on this case have, but that's what we would actually do. We would throw out different theories and say reasons why we believe it. Somebody would come up with a differing opinion, say that the reason they don't. And then you kind of put it all together and you go with your best uh, you know, you go in the best direction that you think is uh, where the evidence is leading you. Joe, Joe, be Joe, before I go to your last words, I just want to uh, read Daisy's statement because I, I'm very sensitive to this. Uh, I get very agitated because as a DV survivor, cops always believed the man and did the jokes, lighthearted combo with husband while I was drilled and condescended to. That's why video is triggering. Daisy, I'm sorry that that That's happened horrible. to you. But I, I never responded to DV jobs like that because I, I was the boss and the last word went with me. And I listened to both sides of the story. And if necessary, I locked up both parties. But believe me, I did a thorough investigation. And I'm sorry that that was your experience. Joe, I never words. I never like bullies, Bill. And and anybody that's going to be hitting a woman that's, you know, smaller than them or whatever, that to me, that's a bully. And uh, I gave everybody fair shakes, but uh, I don't like bullies. So that's terrible that it happened to that poor girl. Yeah. Joe, last words. You know, I, I, I got stifled a little bit on the show, you know, just a little bit. So I want to just reaffirm a couple of points. <laughs> I think the parents are getting a raw deal. You're, you're assuming facts that we don't have, and you're beating the hell out of them. <clears throat> Not just you guys. I think everyone, the public, the chat, everybody. 
They're beating the hell out of these parents, assuming they're guilty. And I think a lot of that is the frustration of not knowing facts. So you think the worst. And that's unfortunate. And also here, yes, you know, I want everybody to think of that meter, right? Think of the needle on the meter. He's presumed innocent. Okay, now we're looking at some of the facts. We're looking and we're seeing circumstantially. You have to now think, and that's the job of the defense attorney, is there any other possible scenario that could raise the possibility of someone else doing it? And that's what you have to do. And when you can rule that out, then you have guilt beyond a reasonable doubt. And I just want to leave you with this. Seven days, not full days, but you know the, the flight out and the flight back, seven days and six nights from the 17th to the 23rd. I'm not going to assume anything other than she was not sitting in the van alone, okay? And she was interacting with people, maybe met people. Maybe after that incident on the 27th, they separated because that's what Brian does. And she hooked up with some other friends who were at this location and some tragedy befell her. I don't know what it is, but I'm saying if I'm at trial with this and I can present a theory that's logical and makes sense based on the facts we know, you cannot, you cannot find that person guilty beyond a reasonable doubt. You may want to. You may think he's guilty. I even think he's guilty, but not enough to satisfy that meter heading into the red zone guilty beyond a reasonable doubt. And you got to try to think like that. We, you know, we could all spitball and talk about, oh, my, because it happened to me, it happened to her. It may not have. There may be somebody out there who murdered her who's going to go undetected because of the mob mentality honing in on him. So I just want to leave you at that. Keep an open mind. It's not going to change anything. It's not going to affect the case, but just look at that meter and see what facts are pointing towards guilt. And maybe hmm, there's a problem here. Think if that were the case, he should come forward and tell us what, what really happened then. But I don't think right. he's going I, to. I think you're right. But uh, I don't, we, Listen, you'd put every lawyer out of business in the world if everyone came in and talked to the police. It never happened. It's, it's just not going to happen. Yeah, but you know, he, you know guys, when I give you your last words, I don't mean like a, I don't mean a soliloquy. All right. I just mean your last words. That's why, Bill, I was holding on. Yeah. We're, we're, we're at an hour and 22 minutes. I think we got to sign off. This has been. Uh, Bill Cannon from Police Off the Cuff Real Crime Stories with my co-host Phil Grimaldi and our frequent special guest. You either love him or you hate him. We happen to love him. Joe Murray, uh, thank you guys for being on the show. We're going to say goodnight to everybody. Stay safe, everyone. Good night. One episode, just ain't enough.